It's time for Supply Chain Now Radio, broadcasting live from the supply chain capital of the country, Atlanta, Georgia. Supply Chain Now Radio spotlights the best in all things supply chain, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and the critical issues of the day. And now, here are your hosts. Good afternoon, Scott Luton here with you live on Veterans Voices. Welcome back to the show. We have an outstanding conversation teed up for today's podcast focused on a veteran leader that is deeply involved in both the critical issues facing our community as well as the challenging coronavirus pandemic that we're all facing together. So more on that in just a moment. Quick programming note or two as we get started here. So Veterans Voices is the new name for the Vetlanta Voice podcast. It's hosted by Supply Chain Now and presented in partnership with our friends at Vetlanta. And it's widely available. So find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. So I want to welcome in my esteemed co-host on today's show, uh, Kevin Horgan, Vetlanta and Vets Talk Operations. Kevin, how you doing? Good, good. Great to be here, Scott. Absolutely. We've got a great show teed up. Uh, I think um, you know, we've enjoyed the shows we, we hosted together. I think uh, Tyler with VEO was our, our last guest, and what a compelling story he had, huh? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's always it's heartwarming to listen to some of these great stories. Mm, mm, that's right. So with no further ado, let's welcome in our featured guest here today, Dr. Amy Stevens, Chief Healthcare Officer and Chief of Women Veterans, two roles with Vetlana. Uh, Amy, how are you doing? Hey, Scott, I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Absolutely, and, and glad you're here. You know, we, we've been, uh, I, I follow you on social media. You're, you're very active in, in all your support in industry and, and a lot of other critical roles. So great to have you here and, and get to know more about you and your, your thought leadership. So, um, so Kevin, let's just, we're going to dive right in. How's that sound? Sounds good to me, boss. <laughs> okay, so uh, Amy, for starters, uh, tell us. Let, let's get to know you a little bit better. So, so for starters, where did you grow up, and you know, give us an anecdote or two about your upbringing. Okay, happy to do that. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I come from the great state of Maine, mm. and uh, I just love it there. That's where all my family is, except for my son, who uh, lives in Kennesaw. I landed up here in uh, Georgia because of the military, and then the job that, that I had here in Atlanta, but uh, I am from Maine, love it up there. I have a summer home and I spend most of my summers there. And uh, just kind of a typical Maine girl, I don't live on the coast that people always ask about <laughs> Bahaba. No, I'm a real Mainer, I live on a, close to a lake, uh, which is what real Mainers do. And yes, I do eat lobster, but not every day. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, Maine is one of those places, we have about the same number of people there as you might have, say, in Gwinnett County mm. or in Cobb County squished in. So for the, but that's for our entire state. So uh, it's, it's quite a different cultural type of background, a different type of upbringing. You can go outside, just relax and enjoy yourself most of the time. Mm. Uh, we do have a little bit of crime, but not much. Mostly we have uh, green trees and blue sky, and that's the way I like it. <laughs> Well, hey, is so I, when I was in the Air Force, I served with uh, a gentleman that came, hailed from Maine, and we learned a lot about the state um, back then. He just retired, as a matter of fact, which is, is congrats to, uh, to him. So let the blueberry industry was big, and he, he would talk about how he'd, uh, his summer jobs was involved in the blueberry industry. Is that still the case? Well, not so much so much for uh, young people anymore, but certainly when I was growing up, you could tell what part of the state you lived in. Because if you lived up in the county, that would be Aroostook County, then your summer job was digging potatoes because mm. Maine potatoes are grown up north. Uh, down in the area of central Maine where I grew up, yeah, absolutely. Blueberry raking was a big thing in August. You'd go out there, that's how you'd make your summer money. And uh, I remember actually one of my sisters burned her arms terribly because she was out there raking berries in the mm. sun one one year so <laughs> yes it, it is a very important part of our um, main agriculture love it love it and, and i'd love to dive so much more into that part of the country i find it fascinating but we're going to keep moving right along because we've got so much to tackle uh in this interview with uh with kevin on with us as well all right so let's shift gears let's talk about your job now so you're involved with uh, a lot of women's veterans groups. Tell us more about that 
And, um, and then I want to follow up with a separate question. So tell us more about the women's groups you're involved with. Okay. Well, first off, I want to make sure you know it's not a job. It's an mm. avocation. I'm a volunteer. Mm. I don't get paid for anything um, because that's what Vetlanta is all about is just serving veterans, is that we're a club. We're not a nonprofit. So when I work with uh, my sister veterans, uh, it's because I care about them, and I am one of them. That makes a big difference. Um, men tend to, you know, you know, keep in mind, I'm a clinician also, right? Uh, and I didn't exactly explain that is that I'm Dr. Amy but I'm, I'm a licensed uh, clinical uh, mm. counselor, licensed professional counselor and uh, not a medical doctor but mm. it's all about knowing how people work well together and in transitioning from the military when the guys get together it's about 80 plus percent of veterans are going right. to be men uh, 15 to 20 percent are going to be women we tend to get drowned out at veterans events because mm -hmm. you know it's, it's just a numbers game right. uh, and women it's the unique part of, of gender differences is that most women will have friends we we crave girlfriends <laughs> just to hang out with <laughs> share information things like that guys tend to you know if you have one or two good friends that you can go out with you know go fishing go to the, the pub or, or whatever that's usually good most women have five to ten friends that they can call up to chit chat about different things and mm. uh, I started these groups um, really uh, quite a long time ago now uh, 2012 uh, after I had worked for three and a half years with the Georgia National Guard as their director of psychological health mm. and I found out that there were a lot of things going on in the women's <coughs> community that I had no idea about I really did not recognize that things had not changed a lot <coughs> since the time that right. I was on active duty uh, and I found that the women just really appreciated having a chance to talk to somebody. Uh, really, social media was kind of frowned on at mm. the time, uh, but I started doing a little bit of it. And when I actually left the Guard, I started a Facebook group. A and that's what's kind of hilarious about the whole thing is that I just basically <laughs> invited a few of the ladies that I had met through the Guard to join me in a little Facebook group. And Love it. over time, we have developed almost 4,000 women that are very, very actively engaging in what's called Georgia Military Women mm. on Facebook. And it's really done a lot for connecting the women. We have a lot of activities and I can tell you quite a lot more about that if you want. Um, but, but it's all about connecting and, and sure. that's what's real important. Uh, I've done this now, as I said, since 2012. Uh, ended up c going to some of the Vetlanta events, really enjoyed being part of the networking there. But quite frankly, right. there weren't that many women that were there uh, other than some spouses. Uh, Vetlanta actually invited me to become part of their board and mm. I promised them I would bring the women and I certainly and have, have, haven't I? <laughs> I certainly have. So, and the ladies so folks, really enjoy coming too. Mm. So of course our listeners can check out Georgia Military Women uh, via the same Facebook page, and, and, and if they qualify, they can they can join as a member and engage with the group, right? Right, and membership's totally free. There's no cost. Uh, we don't uh, sell anything. We don't allow anybody to sell anything. We don't do Love politics. It. We don't do religion. It's a no-drama zone is what it is. <laughs> it's all about just being friends. So let's, um, gosh, there's so much we could dive in there, but let, let's shift gears a bit because you mentioned your, your um, uh, uh doctorate background, licensed professional counselor. Talk to us, if you would, you know, virtual medicine. Is that a positive clinical advancement? I, I, I'm, I'm making an assumption here about your answer, but I want to hear it from you. Is, that, is, is virtual medicine positive for our, our veterans? Oh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's really been in effect maybe 10 to 15 years is when we started uh, seeing it being used more and more. And it was complicated at first just because of access to stable um, venues over the Internet so that we could do it. Uh, the other thing that clinicians are very concerned about is privacy and mm. HIPAA laws because if we are working with you clinically we want to make sure that your private information is uh, protected so that's always been a very important thing and what's happened over time and really this is within the past 10 years uh, that it is developed to the point where almost all professionals in the healthcare field can use some level of of telehealth and 
most of us now, and, and this would include licensed professional counselors and, and the licensing board in the state of Georgia for social workers, marriage and family therapists, and for psychologists, all include some kind of requirement to have at least a minimum number of CEUs, mm -hmm. continuing education credits, in the area of, of telehealth so that we can provide services. That is a licensure requirement now. Mm -hmm. But really, it, it just comes down to providing uh, the privacy you know, and that, that's kind of the technical part of it that's important or the legal part of it. Right. The other thing is just the comfort level of doing it. Some people really feel strongly that they have to see your face. Mm. Other people are fine with the wonders of radio, right? <laughs> um, and, and it kind of depends on the person. There are certainly reasons to go with either one. If, if I can see your face, if I can see if you're moving closer to me, mm. if I can see that you're crying, that's real important. And so yeah. there's a variety of online types of programs that, that you can use for this. Uh, and you pay a lot of money for some of them, especially mm. in the beginning. Uh, but at this point, no, and I know this has just come out, is that right. the HIPAA standards have actually been loosened a little bit for the coronavirus mm. so mm. that other things can be used. But I can tell you that for myself, when I started w with uh, the Georgia National Guard as a clinician, I found out myself, and, and this is something, it, it's not just veterans and, and military personnel, but uh, I found that my guard members a lot of times really didn't want to be seen coming into my office. Right. You know, the act sure. of shame saying you got to go talk to a counselor. So they would call me. Well, that, and, and that's, uh, you know, it, we could have a great chat that right. way, right? And I think that's one of the things we want to talk about is, is kind of the, the difference, where the differences are between how veterans seek out and, and what the types of treatments uh, are effective with, with our veteran community versus civilians. Speak a little bit more to that. I mean, clearly, one of the differences I heard you just share is, um, and I don't want to generalize, but a lot of veterans don't want to be seen as a victim. And, and of course, in my experience at least, when you reach out for help, something's wrong right? that's just kind of baked into our brain somewhere oh absolutely um, well right? hey you know I'm, i served too we didn't cover the fact i am a navy right. veteran that's right, right. i yep. served 11 years active duty mm. i served four additional years in the reserves mm. i have a medical discharge from active duty and i am a service-connected uh disabled veteran and so mm. uncle sam sends me a check every month i'm not retired but i you know i i certainly did serve i totally get it mm. that people in the military are concerned about having something like this in their record. Right. Uh, now, it does change careers. We can talk about it not changing a career, but the reality is if the word gets out that you had to go to psych for something, uh, that's not a good thing. Right. You know, and uh, you have to kind of find a way to get around that stigma, mm. but also get the person help. One of the things to consider is that all mental health is not the same. Mm. Okay, is that a lot of stuff that comes into our lives is just the garbage of life. Everybody has bad days. Some right. people have bad weeks, bad months, and I don't know you, Scott, but you know, chances are you've had a bad year or two somewhere along the line, right? Right, right. Okay, so what you have to kind of look at is how does that affect your daily functioning mm. ability? Because if you're feeling bad, you're not focused on your job, you know, you're maybe uh, getting angry at your spouse. Right. Maybe you're going to the bar a little bit more often than you should. Mm. All of those kinds of things. And so, you know, the trick here on, on thinking about mental health is thinking about functioning level and are you able to, to do the things that most people do in their life. And, and, you know, you could scale yourself on a scale of one to ten. You know, and there's, let me tell you, there's not too many tens. There's some people that pretend they're tens. Some people believe that there's tens. I, very rare can I find somebody that I really think is a ten. Most right. most of us function somewhere. You know, let's call it a seven or an eight. <laughs> right. right. Sure. You know, I mean, that's the reality, right? So, um, you know, and and it kind of goes up and down f from there. And it it's usually not a chronic mental health issue. Mm. Okay. So what that means is that a seven or eight things aren't perfect in your life. 
Right. But you go on. You find a way to make it do. You know, you look at the economic crash going on right now. Jeez, that's terrible, isn't it? Binds me up a bit. Mm. You know, <laughs> I'm concerned about it. Absolutely. Um, right? But that doesn't mean that the, the sky is call, falling in for me either. You know, mm. I'm kind of making my plans, thinking about where can I cut back on my budget. Sure. You know, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm going to have to get a job again. You know, I do, I do work a little bit part-time, um, but no, not a whole lot. Maybe I need to get some, some other income flowing if, if that ends up being something long-term. And we don't mm. know that it will be at this point. It's too right. early to tell. Um, so, but, but that's how a seven or an eight functions, is, is that you have your moment. You say, mm. oh, oh, golly. And... Um, then you think about it, the what ifs, the could ifs, you come up with your plan, and you do what you gotta do to take care of yourself, in most mm. cases, okay? And that, that's a normal functioning person, so some ups and downs. That's the person that may want to bounce something like that off of somebody else. And right. so that kind of mental health is called non-clinical counseling. It means that you don't have, actually have a diagnosis, although some therapists will give you a diagnosis so they can get paid by the insurance program. Right. 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 Now, for military people, especially those on active duty, they can use programs like Military One Source. Have you ever heard of that one? It's been I, around I for a while. Kevin may have. Yeah. Well, it's it's one that's been around for a while, and, and I don't think you fellows have been on active duty recently, probably. But right. That's okay. Military One Source, uh, Military Family Life programs. Uh, they provide non-clinical counseling doesn't go into your record it's a uh, contract type of stuff so it helps there's a military family life counselor at just about every major base uh, military one source is one of those programs where you call in the 1-800 number mm. um, and you can talk with a counselor that lives in your area uh, for people that aren't in the military uh, if you work for a private company, you know, UPS, for example, uh, right. whatever company you work for, Scott, uh, there's a program called Employee Assistance Programs, EAP. Mm -hmm. And most companies that are of any size have an EAP counselor that's available. And again, it's non-clinical. They can talk to you about your uh, anxiety, about finances, relationships, grief and loss, career choices, all of those kinds of things. And again, it's, it's very limited sessions. Nobody's assuming that you're nuts, you know, because you're not. You're just having right. stress in your life. And, you know, sometimes when you talk to um, your mom, you don't tell her everything because you don't want to worry her, right? Right. And, That's right. Right? And, and same thing goes with the spouse. Or maybe the spouse just doesn't understand certain things because mm. they weren't where you were on this particular topic. And... Right, and they might be part of the problem, that's right. Or, or I don't know about you guys, but, you know, like siblings, your brothers and sisters, right. it's kind of like they know you too well. Yes. So, so you know, like they're, they're bringing stuff up from your past that you don't want to even talk about, well, right? So just on the record, so. since uh, our families will hear this, I can assure you there's, <laughs> there's never a problem with my spouse, Amanda. I want to make sure I keep my nose clean. Just in well, case she's listening. That's, that's right. right. So, that's but right. the non-clinical <laughs> clinical counseling is, is what I like to talk to people about, that it's important to have that level of connection with somebody that mm. you can talk to, that there's a certain amount of privacy with it. You know, I mean, you don't want to have everything end up on the prayer list at church, right? Right, right. <laughs> right, because that happens sometimes, too. But, sure. Um, but, you know, so somebody you can talk to. The other flip side of uh, mental health, though, because, and this is important for veterans, certainly, is when it becomes acute or chronic mm. and when it tr significantly interferes with your capacity to maintain relationships or to maintain a job, for example, yep. when you become homeless, all mm. of those kinds of things, or, or you have other symptoms, including suicidal. You know, that's when we actually give a diagnosis to somebody, and, and that's when we look at and give the, the term called level of care. So if we say on that spectrum of one to 10, mm. somebody who's functioning a seven or eight, probably non-clinical counseling is five, is fine. Uh, when somebody's kind of on the meter as a five or under, then that's when we're kind of kind of look at whether or not something is going on that's a little bit more serious. We want to spend more time with that person to seeing what's going on. Yep. The good thing though, is that if somebody is a five, it's pretty easy actually to bring them up to a seven mm. 
in most cases, again, the non-clinical counseling, some problem solving may help bring them up. It may mean that there is a little bit more intensive types of treatments that are mm -hmm. available where you actually spend a little bit longer, um, you know, in, a, in an uh, outpatient setting. Um, so that you get more intense therapy. And there's a lot of programs that are really awesome at doing that. Uh, if, if on the meter you're a five, it doesn't mean that you're gonna have problems all your life. Right. It means that you need some help from a professional level. A tune-up, right? Right, a tune-up, a tune good tune-up though. Not yeah. just a little tune-up, probably <laughs> a good tune-up. Might take more than one time. You might right. have to go on medication for a while. Right. And that's okay. You know, right. and, and, and you'll find out that you're, you know, that, that this clinician is going to work with you. And oh, by the way, if you ever go to therapy and you don't like your clinician, remember, it's about you. It's mm. not about your therapist. Wait, before. So uh, this is this is gosh, um, uh, for the sake of time, I want to move ahead and I want to get Kevin back involved. But before I do, I got a very important question as a dog lover. You got it. Uh, we all, hey, we got kids and dogs in, in the backgrounds of, of all of our most important office meetings. What is your dog's name and what type <laughs> of dog is he? Okay, you did or hear she. him on the way out there. Sorry I love about him. that. I, no, no, okay. no, don't. No, I, I'm a, we're dog fans. You'll probably okay. hear mine in a minute. Okay, well, that is Mr. Wildman Charlie. <laughs> and <laughs> he is a Schnauzer mix. He looks like a Benji Terrier. He weighs about 24 pounds, he's okay. a little overweight. It, and, and he's def he's a, a uh, he's into his security of the compound, right? Yes, he is. He's <laughs> bolted out the pet door, uh, so he's outside right now. And he he's <laughs> the man in my life right now, the only man in my life other than my my son, uh, and, and he is the boss of me. Oh, so. okay, <laughs> that's yes. great. So welcome, Mr. Wildman Charlie. We hope to interview you maybe on the next go round here. All right, so. Kevin, I want to, um, I hate to skip down a couple here, but I really want to get into this middle section of the interview where I think a lot of our listeners can benefit from the timeliness of, of uh, getting uh, Dr. Amy Stevens' expertise on what we're facing. So I know you, you want to ask more about the Red Cross um, uh, mental health manager role, right? Well, that's, that's a piece of it. We can jump right to the current events if you'd like. I, you know, um, we... we I really loved what what uh, Amy just shared uh, with, especially with the scale. Everyone can rate, can, can um, identify with that one to ten scale, and and it's it's you know no neg, it's not negative or, or it's not a, a bad thing to go in and get a tune up. So maybe maybe we do for the sake of the interview, we, we we move more into current environment because there's so much there to get through. I think. Okay, I appreciate that. Thanks, Scott and Dr. Amy. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, uh, I wanted to ask you very specifically in a general sense, um, is, is the current state of the COVID-19 events, is that affecting your work? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, what I am seeing is an elevated uh, sense of anxiety. And what you see in a case like this is that people that have pre-existing mental health concerns are going to be basically agitated a little mm -hmm. bit more than usual uh, and it kind of combines it rolls up so that you know they're already living in a state that has high anxiety maybe they're bipolar or something like that and so this is where I'm getting into that lower spectrum on my scale of, of the under fives right is that especially somebody who's on like the one and two those are the ones that probably are inpatient and are having a lot of treatment, and, you know. And I'll be honest to to you, a person that that comes out on a clinical scale, and, and I'm just kind of making this up to to try to give you a picture of it. Somebody who's who's like a one or two, chronically in and out of the hospital, has to be on medications, chronically homeless. Those people, if we can get them up to a five, sometimes that's a miracle. It's very very hard to do. Some people will slip off the train, you know and they can get right back on but somebody who's been in that situation long term is going to have a big struggle so when i'm talking about people that that are dealing with um just regular levels of anxiety and that's going to be the majority of people people have this crazy idea that all veterans have ptsd no we don't it's about really you know very few relatively speaking that have major problems let's put that in the lower 20 percent uh, the typical veteran is going to scale somewhere between a three and a seven, okay? So what happens is that if we have somebody who has been having issues, especially in the past, 
Um, and now, because of COVID-19, uh, maybe they're going to have job loss, right? I mean, because they're people probably who have already struggled financially, probably already struggled with holding on to relationships and jobs. Well, now, you know, we see the economy crashing. They, they're going to lose their job. And oh, no, now what are they going to do? This is serious. And so they get elevated, they get agitated. And what happens with everybody, there's a process that goes with being in crisis. It's, it's kind of the, the first step is kind of like when you hit your head and say, what's going on? Because you don't expect it. We certainly didn't expect COVID-19. This was unprecedented. We are in uncharted waters with this. We, nobody knew what was going to happen with this. We'd never heard of such a thing. There hasn't been a, a major pandemic in the United States that actually affects our country at this level in practically since uh, probably 100 years ago, 1918, you know, with the Spanish flu. So mm. everybody's jumping into this, and there's a certain phase that everybody goes into, which is called, you know, I call it the what is could ifs, is that mm. everybody's shooting stuff out there. There's a lot of misinformation. Right. People are scared. Nobody's listening to reason. And quite frankly, there's no right or wrong way to do crisis. So people do missteps all the, all the time. And so the vulnerable people with mental health issues, they get caught up in that. It makes them worse. And, and that's, they're the ones that do need help. Right, sure. Now, Dr. Amy, have you been to any hospital, VA or civilian in the past week or so? Uh, I actually have not been over to the Atlanta VA, but I had a friend of mine send me some pictures to show what they're doing over there. Um, I can, you know, and, and yeah, and, and I also, I want to mention, I mentioned, I visited the Seabock that's in East Cobb, okay, the one that's on Roswell Street, not too far from the uh, Big Chicken in Marietta. Uh, I went to the, um, the Seabock first, uh, actually, because Mr. Charlie's uh, groomer is right next door. So while I was dropping my dog off, I stopped there at, at um, the, uh, the clinic right next door. So what I saw there was that they had a nice young lady that was dressed in scrubs. She had a mask on and gloves, and she was asking appropriate screening questions. Uh, essentially, the same thing is happening over at the Atlanta VA, is that what they've done is they, they locked down the hospital pretty much to two entrances. There's the main entrance, and then there's emergency room entrance. They are doing um, like a check-in procedure. Everybody is screened. If somebody is sick, you know, they're not going to be in there. Or if they're a veteran, you know, I'm, I'm, it's talking about people being sick. You know, it might be that somebody is sent home with their employee or to their own physician. It kind of depends. But there's a wellness check going on. The ninth ward of the hospital has been converted into an isolation ward is what I understand. I have been told that there's at least, I think at this point, nine or ten veterans that are up on the isolation ward but I can say everything is going exactly the way it's supposed to be mm. uh, the Atlanta VA is following the CDC and public health guidelines most of the clinics are closed but most of the staff are still coming to work and what they have done is that they've mostly switched over to telehealth if at all possible and if they have not done that they may have postponed um, and rescheduled uh, the in-person clinic visits that would have been on the schedule otherwise. Wow. I, I, I want to ask a question, Dr. Amy, and I don't want to sound callous, um, but a lot has been made of uh, ventilators. I, I know that oxygen is pretty much advanced treatment, and a ventilator itself I had always assumed was life support. Um, once someone is on a ventilator, can they really turn the corner? Well, I want to remind you, Kevin, I am not a medical doctor. I so I may not be the best one to answer that question. But the thing is, people are in ICUs all the time, right? Right. So you have to consider that just because somebody is acutely ill does not mean that they're going to die. Is it serious? Yes, it is. But the, th the reality is not everybody's going to be, become sick at that level. In fact, the majority of people do not become sick at that level. And I can tell you from personal experience, I now have three friends that have been tested positive for the uh, COVID-19, and they're all doing fine, relatively speaking. Have they been sick? Yes. Have they gone to the hospital? No. The majority of people, as I understand from, and this is, again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just watching right. TV like the rest of the world. Um, CDC and public health people are saying the same thing that I'm seeing in my community, which is people are getting the virus. They're not becoming so ill that they have to go to the hospital. 
Unfortunately, there are some people, and those would be extremely vulnerable people, but a few others that maybe had underlying health conditions that maybe right. nobody knew about. Right. I don't know. And, and that is the way it works sometimes, that people just don't know. Um, but people seem to be recovering. I think one That's of the complications news. of all this has been that it is flu season. So some people can have the regular That's right. flu, confused symptoms. Right. Um, I, I well, and I don't know about you, but, but I got the allergies, right? So oh, me too. Uh, if I if oh. I go out in public and my nose is a little sniffly, that's because I am I'm having seasonal allergies. I was out uh, today. Amen. You know? Amen. I got I, it bad. <laughs> but, right. Uh, now, so this is, um, and uh, I, I understand that you're a clinician, but I, I think you understand terminology better than us simple civilians in a lot of this. But if I am asymptomatic, uh, mm -hmm. am I really in any danger? Even if I stay at home, I'm asking for a friend. You understand? Right. Well, my son <laughs> likes to get on my case because he says, Mom, you're a carrier. And you know, that's probably true. Even when I was a kid and the rest of, you know, I'm, I'm one of six kids, right? right? Everybody else in my family got the chicken pox. Guess who didn't show any symptoms, but she went to school and infected the entire fifth grade. Oh, boy. Right. That was me. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and it, it's, it's kind of like that. You know, some of us have a natural immunity, and that's a wonderful thing, or um, we have enough resilience that we have only very minor symptoms. And, and, and because I was in the military, um, I got used to taking the flu shot. In fact, the only year that I ever got seriously ill, I remember it well, 1993, I got some kind of virus. That was the only year in my adult life since I had joined the Navy that I ever did not take the flu shot. And I got some kind of virus, it developed into pneumonia, it developed into adult onset asthma, and I was sick for a year, taking pills. I was on steroids so much that year, I, I ballooned right up on my weight. I, I've never been able to slim down ever since 1993 because of that. Uh, so it can happen. And so I would say on behalf of, um, you know, precaution, you know, the CDC and public health are telling us that we need to flatten the curve we're getting this new vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, so right. if we can prevent ourselves from exposing other people right now, and a lot, and again, keep in mind that most people are gonna be fine, that yes, they're gonna be sick, nobody likes to get the flu or a severe cold. Most of us are gonna be okay, but the thing is that what we've seen overseas, at least in places like Italy, is that everybody getting sick all at the same time is what has overwhelmed the medical facilities. Right. It's right. not that the doctors aren't good or that the treatments are not available. There's just only so much you can do at a time. So by right. spreading people out, that's the, like the, you know, the, the six feet dis uh, distances and things like that. So right now it just makes common sense for people that know that they're potentially vulnerable, you know, have chronic mental, uh, medical uh, conditions, uh, that just uh, practice the social distancing and you know, I'm all for it. I, I totally agree with our governor and our president that we need to have, you know, these um, rules in place for right now. It's not going to be forever. And right. please do not, you know, jam things up with talking about martial law and things like that. See, that's the, the mental health side of it. People get very anxious when rules like this come into play. Um, this is something temporary. Our government is not taking over every aspect of your life. We're asking for cooperation. And I think most people are, are being smart about it and, and doing exactly what they're supposed to do. You know, if you're sick, you know, don't get in any contact with anybody, go into quarantine. If you're not sick, still practice reasonable social isolation. Don't be in big groups of people and, you know, practice good personal hygiene. That will I, help I think us that's, all. I think that's very well said, Dr. Amy, really is. I, and I know you don't want to handicap all of this, but I have to ask, when do you think the ice is going to break on this? Well, I have no idea. Um, the flu season lasts for months, right? Why wouldn't this? Right. That's mm -hmm. the way I see it. And so I don't think this is just going to be over in a couple of weeks. I, I think that we will see some differences going on for quite some time because it is, apparently, it's, it's much more contagious than most of, of these kinds of viruses. So we have to yeah. be smart about that and just recognize it's going to happen. Uh, I also anticipate, like any virus, uh, it's going to take a certain amount of time for the CDC to come up with a vaccine for it. What we see with the flu viruses is that 
the docs have to, and researchers have to work on them for about a year and then there's no guarantee that the flu vaccine right. is going to work from year to year. I'm hopeful that they'll have a good one for next fall and it may or may not work. So we may have another round of contagion, I think, potentially in another year. But hopefully we'll have it, uh, better planning in place we'll be better and containment. Prepared. I think at yeah. this point, you know, the, the goal is containment as much as anything. Absolutely. So, Dr. Amy, if I can, one more COVID-19 question, and then I want to circle back to the Red Cross, if I can. Um, okay. Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks? I'm not Who's answering that question. I'm not asking. <laughs> I'm not answering. <laughs> okay. I, I, I do want to ask you, uh, in all seriousness, uh, we all have a vision of the Red Cross as being there for disasters, delivering water and blankets and helping people. But you're a Red Cross mental health manager. What, what, is, what, what do you do? Is it crisis-based? Is it individually-based? Tell us about it. Okay, yeah, happy to share about that. Um, I have been with the American Red Cross for over 20 years. Uh, I am what they call a DMH, that's a disaster mental health uh, person, and I've been in long enough that I'm a manager. I mostly, from uh, most of the time I've been with the Red Cross, actually responded here locally in the Atlanta area. I was a major player with the Red Cross during Hurricane Katrina and served with that for months. Uh, we had 400 clinicians that were doing mental health in Georgia, in the Atlanta area at that time because we had 20 uh, shelters and service stations open in this area and we handled over 100,000 individuals uh, migrating to the Atlanta area because of the hurricane. Uh, most of what the Red Cross does is response to natural disasters, and that would be hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and things like that. Uh, what I have done more in more recent years after I became semi-retired is I actually deploy to other locations across the country. Uh, and what we do in the Red Cross, you have to understand, Red Cross is an immediate response to a difficult time. We really count on local communities taking care of their own but things are, are so chaotic when bad things happen that that's when the Red Cross really shines. Uh, the Red Cross comes, initially what happens if there's a, a bad thing that happens is that local people try to handle it. Within a week or less, the Red Cross will be there as they are needed and requested uh, to help set up shelters and things like that. Uh, and that, that's really what we do is shelter people and provide food and clothes to get them taken care of until other uh, community resources can take care of, of them. Sometimes we are there for more extended times depending on the nature of the disaster. Um, so it's a very important role. We do uh, work alongside of FEMA, um, the Federal Emergency Management Agencies. Uh, we work with Small Business Administration in partnerships because what happens is that uh, we come together as resource groups that all mm -hmm. share information and, and help people get taken care of. Uh, our goal with mental health in the Red Cross is just the same as it is with COVID-19 uh, approaches and just the same it is with other non-clinical things that are going on in your life is, I, I call it bringing the calm, or another name for it is psychological first aid, is that it's not that anybody uh, truly has mental health issues, it's just that they're overwhelmed this is too much, unprecedented. Right. Right. Most people have no idea what it is like uh, to deal with the aftermath of a natural disaster. I myself remember meeting people coming off the planes up at the Dobbins Air Force Base that had been rescued off of bridges and out of the, you know, that kind of thing down in New Orleans. They walked off the plane with watermarks on their clothes because they had had to walk through floodwaters. Wow in order you know, to be rescued. And they didn't have any personal be uh, belongings. And, and there were little old ladies coming from the nursing homes that didn't know who they were because they had Alzheimer's and w were wandering around not even knowing their own names. And what the Red Cross does is we work alongside of many other mental health and health agencies, public health, uh, the Medical Reserve Corps, that kind of thing, and as well as other local groups to kind of triage what's going on, get people to the right resources so that they can start the recovery phase of their life. Things will never be the same. It, we talk about having a new normal. Things will never be normal 
it will be a new normal with whatever is left for you there. And so that's a lot of what the Red Cross does. Okay, as the manager, do you actually do clinical work yourself or do you dispatch it to others or do you do a referral? Um, how is that? Well, work? I do a little bit of everything. Uh, okay. As it depends on what role I am, is that just like the military, the Red Cross has different levels. Um, we have um, actually now, again, we have another senior level above me called a chief. I'm a manager. Uh, we have supervisors, and then we have uh, service associates. And so the service associates tend to be the ones that do the direct delivery of services to people and in the shelters and, and places like that, or will walk out in the communities and talk to people that are in their houses, um, that kind of thing. Um, and it, it kind of works the same way as far as different level of people that you might be supervising. So, for example, when I was in Baton Rouge following some floods, I had oversight of two very large um, arenas and, and uh, civic centers. I had about, uh, it was less than 2,000 um, residents of, or that were our guests in, in the, um, the shelters that were set up there. Everybody gets their cot. You know, and they get food and things like that until a plan can be made for them to leave the shelter. And so in that scenario, I had 20 to 30 therapists that were working for me, and we were split up into shifts so that a mental health person would be available at all times if somebody just wanted to talk to somebody. Uh, so that would be kind of classic in that situation. Uh, certainly, you know, I, I provide direct services as needed, but a lot of times in a scenario that's that large, a situation, I'm probably going to be in, in other meetings kind of planning ahead on what we're going to need, where, where do I need to send people. Uh, and, and every assignment when I deploy is different. Um, a couple years ago when Hurricane Maria went through, I went to Key West and down in the Keys everything was blown away. Everything was closed down. I slept on a cot uh, in a high school. <laughs> um, there was no potable water so you couldn't even brush your teeth with the tap water, you had to use bottled water to do that. People, we were eating MREs because there wasn't any food. We were so happy when um, things started reopening as the electrical lines got uh, restored. But I'll tell you, the bugs down there were terrible. <laughs> that, was, that was not good. <laughs> but um, and so uh, we were actually able to to move to improved accommodations. I spent the rest of the, my time down there in a Boy Scout camp, and that they had cots, which you know. I mean, stuff like that. So the Red Cross is, uh, it's very interesting because you don't know what you're going to be called for. But in that scenario, because it was a hardship tour, it was just me and one other gal. I had uh, myself going in as, with the, at the time there, they called it a district manager. I had the whole area down there, but I only had one lady that was with me, and she, um, I feel, promoted her to supervisor on the spot, said, you, were in, you know, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. And she and I basically swapped off, and we had, um, you know, service centers, and we had, um, let's see, I think when I got there, we had five shelters to cover between the, wow. the two of us. So, Dr. Amy, Plus one, the staff, one more question by the way. before, we, before mm -hmm. Scott gives me the hook here. Uh, uh, any advice for someone who <laughs> wants to be a first responder, any tricks of the trade for a first responder uh, himself or herself to not succumb to their own problems and issues when assisting others? I'm glad you said that because that's what I was just about to tell you about was that as a, as a mental health manager with the Red Cross, it's not just about helping the clients, it's also about helping the volunteers. And it goes back to just like, you know, when you get on the airplane, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you take care of your baby. Right. Um, that's what we're looking for. And, and this would be in, in any uh, position that you know, is involved in tragic things is that you have to take care of yourself and to be alert of when you're not doing a good job because you're so overwhelmed yourself. Especially as us military people, you know, we run towards danger. And this is first responders like police and, and firefighters as well. Um, it's really hard, I think harder for somebody who's a veteran in many ways because uh, if you've ever been in combat, the rule is Charlie Mike, right? Continue the mission. You know, if, if you're a police officer and there's a car wreck today and you see terrible things, the reality is, is that people that are in those first responder roles, the next day they're going to see maybe the same thing, right? And so sure. you have to learn how to let go of the horror, maybe, of the situation, be able to get your head mentally around that, but still be able to do your job that, that day without going home and kicking your dog or, or your spouse. <laughs> and that is very tough. That's how come... Uh, access to mental health 
is really important to have somebody that you can vent to privately, uh, kind of work through those what ifs, because in a crisis, you know, what, what we call it, we say a disaster is a disaster. Nothing ever goes right. So we just have to be so um, alert to that and, and adapt and overcome, right? Sure. I think that's something Marines do. You're a Marine, aren't you there, Kevin? You can, you can do anything. Uh, Oorah. Uh, I don't hold great. it against you. You were in the Navy. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, so we've covered a wide range of topics, some heavier topics, uh, some timely topics. Um, you know, the, 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 fortunately, the topic of um, taking care of our veterans community seemingly has gotten uh, more time and attention from from corporations and society and that's great but there's still uh, not enough airtime we can give it because of you know where our nation has been the last 20 25 years right um, so I, I want to go lighter I want to finish the interview Kevin and I want to finish the interview on a lighter note so we're talking with Dr. Amy Stevens Chief Healthcare Officer and Chief of Women Veterans with Vetlana um, and Kevin we're gonna so we're gonna wrap up what with what we have playfully called the lightning round right so on a, on a personal <laughs> light and fun note so really quick uh, think uh, dr. Amy think really quick and uh, questions and answers here so for starters what do when you're not um, serving your community and all these different ways that you do um, what do you do for fun give us some hobbies <laughs> somebody who does as much volunteer work as I do uh, being a volunteer is my hobby <laughs> so you know, um, but you know because I real you know I'm an extrovert, flaming extrovert. I love being around people, <laughs> so it works out. And like you know because we do meetups all the time. You know a lot of what we do is on Facebook, um, and so it's online. But uh, we also plan things so that we can go for a walk outside in a park someplace. Or a lot of the ladies love to meet up um, at uh, restaurants. Uh, I like um, the theater and opera. You know, one of the, the really nice, cool things is, is that uh, Home Depot pays for free tickets to the Atlanta Opera at the uh, Cobb Energy Center in Cobb mm -hmm. County. And if you didn't know about that, they're open right now. You go online at atlantaopera.com or something like that, and you can get up to four tickets as a veteran to go see the opera for free. Wouldn't that be cool? Kevin, you should take your wife. She'll like I it. Should. Tell her Madam, <laughs> Madam Butterfly. I should. If I can get a private audience, I will. <laughs> no, it won't be a private audience. But, um, and I don't know, Scott, may, you know, if your spouse would like something like that, I haven't met her. So, yes. um, but ask her if she'd like to go see Madam Butterfly. You know, take her out to that nice dinner, right? <laughs> take Absolutely. her to the opera. Hey, we're game. We are game. We'll hey, have to talk a lot more Well, about you know, I, I, I like to give guys good ideas. You know, I want your relationships to remain strong. And uh, hey, it's free. It's for veterans, and, and so I love the Home Depot. They they also give free tickets to the Alliance Theater, um, and you can get two tickets there. So uh, go love with it. your significant other. It's a good thing to do. So I like doing that kind of stuff. I just like being around people. I don't always hang out with just veterans, though. Um, you know, I have a son and his wife, um, so we do things on a regular basis together. Uh, also, I, I go to church, so I have my church friends. Um, that I spend a lot of time with. So uh, we just find a variety of things to do. Okay. All right. So switching gears a little bit here. Uh, whether you, if you read books, give us your favorite book, or if you're a big movie buff, what's a recent film you've seen that's one of your, or, or one of your favorites? Give us a sense of, uh, of what you're reading or what you're watching. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not really that much in, into watching the movies and, and reading the books as much. I'm, I do what they call escape reading. I don't want to remember it. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, is it, and actually, I'll tell you, that's, that's one of my mental health barometers for myself. Interesting. Is that um, if I have not, not done what, basically read a book that I know I don't have to remember, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if I have not read anything for escape reading for a while, that's an indicator to me that I'm working too hard. Mm -hmm. And so it means I've got to go find something. And actually, the last major book that I've read that people would know is Little Women. I had gone to see the movie at, at um, the first part of January. Actually, I was up home visiting uh, my sisters up in Maine, and we, I took my, my two sisters out to watch that movie. My, my older sister had not been to a, a movie in forever. I said, yeah, let's go. They got those recliner chairs now. 
I said, it's great, it's like in your <laughs> living room. Right, so, so we went and we saw Little Women, and it inspired me to go out and, and get a copy of the book, right? So, so that was kind of cool, I, I read Little Women. Uh, favorite movies, I'll tell you what I really like, this is terrible, but I really like Fried Green Tomatoes. Do you know, oh, do, yes. you, do you remember classic. that one? I'll tell it's you my favorite great scene. Movie. Oh, yeah. Well, my favorite scene, let me tell you, is the one in the parking lot. You know, I remember, remember, I'm a little old lady, right? Um, so, you know when you're in the parking lot and you're trying to get that parking spot and some, oh, I can't say the word on radio, can I? But you know that person uh, zips into your spot and then... Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Like the main character just kind of backs up and rams that that little person's <laughs> car several right. times. He says, why do you do that? He says, because I'm, I'm older than you are and I have better insurance, right? So <laughs> I love that. You know, it, it well, suits, it suits my the same movie, <laughs> uh, Dr. Amy, isn't that the same movie where they've got a cake uh, styled as a possum and there's kind of a love-hate relationship with two characters in the movie and the gentleman uh, in this love-hate relationship asks for a piece of cake and the lady chops off the rear end of the possum of the oh. cake. That, that's well, I don't, actually, I don't remember that anymore. I, I need to watch the movie again. But, you know, I've watched oh, it more than one, one time. But, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people. When I, when I do, uh, and I do like to read, actually. I, I read a lot of different things. I read a lot of technical stuff, really. But um, I am a voracious reader. But it's more about just letting my mind go where I don't have to remember anything. I, I'm, I, and I read a, actually quite a, a wide range of things. Uh, actually, one of my hobbies is I collect juvenile fiction. I hmm. really like books that are over 100 years old. And um, for an example, think of, Jane, uh, of, of Charles Dickens, um, which are really formula books, if you would, uh, because they basically have the same plot lines. They change a little bit, but, you know, basically... There's some poor orphan <laughs> that has gotten into desperate times, right. and there's some mean sure. person, and um, the benevolent person comes along and rescues them, and it's, it's a strong male figure that, you know, usually a young man, um, who meets a pretty young girl, they go through some drama, they work through it, and they live happily ever after. Well, uh, early juvenile fiction from the turn of the century and earlier usually contain uh, what I call a morality stories which are, t are teaching, you t teaching you to be noble people, to have good ethics and integrity. Right. And right. I, I think that for me, that's something that I see that is missing a lot from society. And I like that kind of stuff. I don't want to read horror stuff, even though Stephen King does write his books about Maine. I know all the places right over there in <laughs> Lewiston, close to where I live. You know, <laughs> I mean, you can go visit the places he writes about. And... Uh, you know, he passes through Augusta, where I'm from, all the time, and my, my relatives tell me that they've seen him. You know, Steven Spielberg comes through it occasionally, too, but S Stephen King actually lives in Maine. But, so I have read the horror movie type of stuff, but uh, it's not my favorite. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I tell you, um, lightning and thunder round is what we're calling this, Kevin, from now on. So <laughs> let's, let's move right along. So, Kevin, you're going to ask about uh, travel, right? Uh, well, you know, I already know Dr. Amy's favorite place in the world, and I think that's Central True. Maine. So that, that's, that's, an, right. that's a layup. I know that one. How about this, uh, <laughs> Dr. Amy? Who was the most influential service member on your young career? Influential? Well, let's see. Well, I hear Charlie running about through the pep door or something <laughs> here now. Uh, influential. Um, okay. Well, uh, Grace Hopper, the inventor of COBOL. Um, computer language and wow. Fortran and all of that. You know, she was qu quite an influencer very early in my career. Uh, you have to keep in mind, I joined um, the Navy when we were still using uh, tin cans and string, you know, mm. paper cups wrapped around your ears, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the computer systems were very, very new. And I ended up taking courses in computer science as, as a young ensign. Um, because I was fascinated by it. I, f I found out that I'm not really a, a computer programmer, I'll have to tell you that, it's not my thing, but I learned a lot about it. And as a result, I became an early adopter of technology uh, so mm -hmm. that it, what's happened as a result was I ended up buying my first uh, personal computer in 1982, a, a green screen, um, and had to learn DOS and BASIC in order to use it. Um, among my friends, I would be one of the first that I knew that ever had a cell phone and things like that. And I've, I've kind of continued that 
um, throughout my life. Like with my car, I have all the, the gadgets. I, I like technology. Um, I think it's very important to do that. And so I would say the computer part of the Navy really did make a huge difference uh, in my life as far as being able to know about that kind of stuff and, and stay engaged. I, uh, I, I have one last question for you, and it's kind of a curveball. Uh, oh, no. Is, is I might not answer the question, Kevin. Okay. But, well, how about your faith? Is it, do you consider that a part of your profession, or do you think your profession is part of your faith? Okay. Well, I think it's very important to understand that uh, everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. That is absolutely essential. I might not agree with you. In fact, I might not agree with you a lot. But uh, he is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, I do have a deep personal faith. And uh, actually, I did not become a Christian until I was 18 years old. I got saved, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative Christian. I got saved through the ministry of um, and the navigators at my uh, campus in, at the University of Maine uh, in Orono. Um, so I was only 18 years old. I ended up transferring actually to uh, what at the time was known as Lynchburg Baptist College. Yeah, I, people today might not even know who Jerry Falwell is, but um, he, he was a very well-known evangelist uh, back in the 70s. And so I'm actually one of the very first graduates of that school, which is now known actually as, as Liberty University. Liberty, uh, they had to sure. change the name. Um, and so, yes, one of the things that Jerry Falwell really emphasized, and I, th I think it, it's um, been the defining thing for me, is uh, to encourage us to be champions and champions for Christ. Not everybody's going to know that I do it because of my faith, uh, but that is part of a big part of who I am. And, um, you know, I'm not an evangelist. I figured that one out. I didn't do too well in that class at school. But um, <laughs> what, what, what I did learn, though, is, uh, and, and this is actually part of my trauma work with people, is that to say, you know, there is a plan. You know, and, and sometimes I'll kind of wave at the sky and say, there's a plan. Um, but we don't know what it is, right? I mean, the Alpha and the Omega, there is a beginning and an end. Um, but we're on that continuum. What I, what I do know, though, is, is my personal belief is that God can see it all and that God knows what's going on and that it's very important to have faith that it's going to work out. And that's really informed my attitude towards life. Again, I have laid on the floor and said, God, why me? And, and that there's, there's definitely a lot of stuff that I see in my moment of pain that I, I think it's not fair. But in the long run, what I've been able to do is look back and at every step of trauma that I've had, and certainly there have been some, that I can see it forced me to, to stop and think and to make other choices. Sometimes it was two steps back. Sometimes it was two steps forward. But it's right. landed me where I am today. And, and I know at this point in my life, I'm exactly where I should be. And, and I thank God for that. And I, that for me is a very uh, important part of my faith. Wow, okay. I, yeah, well, Dr. Amy, I, I, one last thing I just want to share with you. I unashamedly will say this, you are doing God's work. And I mean that, bravo Zulu. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Well, I think that's a great note to kind of wrap up on. We'll have to have you back, uh, Dr. Amy Stevens. There's so much there in the last hour and some ch uh, hour or so that we, we tackled uh, on the heavy side, on, on the uh, really important noble mission side, and then, of course, we had some fun all along the way. So, But to echo what Kevin's saying, um, really do appreciate your passion, not just the work you do, but the passion you do it, because I imagine... When volunteers rub elbows with passionate volunteer leaders like you, you get more people involved in the good work that needs to be done. And, and the good work that's, that, that is gonna, there's going to be a need for that for a long time to come based on, 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 on you know, us being at war for, for 20 years. So, um, But really appreciate what you do. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. We've been talking with Dr. Amy Stevens, Chief Healthcare Officer and Chief of Women Veterans at Vetlanta. And... Kevin, what a great, what a great conversation, right? Amen, amen. Always like, I mean, always been a, like hanging out with Amy. I can tell you that. <laughs> I do too. Well, and it's my first time really hanging out. So, hey, anytime, uh, give me a call if you're in distress, there, Scott. You know, Kevin's got my number. He'll share it with you. Outstanding. <laughs> I'll take him up on it. And you know, to our audience, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, as you might can tell, we're we're conducting this interview remotely. Uh, versus all the other shows we've done where we're all in the studio together really enjoying each other's company but 
um, you know, on that note, um, to our audience, you know, wishing y'all a successful week ahead. Want you to stay safe. Take the precautions. Listen to what Dr. Amy Stevens shared. Don't panic. Brighter days are certainly ahead. Uh, and, and again, Veterans Voice, uh, Voices is an initiative proudly presented by Supply Chain Now. You can learn more about us at SupplyChainOurRadio.com and Betlana. You can learn about all the really neat things that uh, Kevin and Dr. Amy and Lloyd and the whole team are doing to serve the veteran community throughout the metro Atlanta area. You can learn more at Vetlanta.org. Again, you can find Veterans Voices and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And if you get your podcast from a place that you can't find us, you let us know. We can be there next. So, uh, Kevin, thanks for all of your partnering through this series. Looking forward to what's next. Uh, do you want to give a quick chat about, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but about the exciting new Vets Talk project? It's, uh, it's a project we're doing, Vetlanta's doing in conjunction with KPMG. We are taking uh, veterans to just tell their story. They tell it to a, a camera just as if they were talking to one person. And it's usually a personal mm -hmm. vignette of something that influenced their life. We're right now securing people to uh, do our next taping. Hopefully we can do it in May, and we're looking to do maybe a once-a-month taping for maybe half a dozen uh, people locally. Uh, KPMG is taking it to their National Veterans BRG group. We're very excited about the prospects. And if I could do a plug, dub.vets-talk.com. Go ahead and check it out. Outstanding. Okay. On behalf of the entire team, Scott Luton here. Again, wishing you a successful week ahead. We will see you next time here on Veterans Voices. Thanks, everybody.